Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of May It Displease the Court. A podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the court system has always been, but especially under the Trump administration. I'm Mary, your resident lawyer, and I decided to throw away my law review credentials to work for poor people, which means that I still have tons of student loan debt, and most of my clients initially assume that I must be a bad attorney, because otherwise, why would I do this kind of work? <laughs> but who loves poor, unfortunate people for free, you know what I, I mean? Know, right? And, but I will tell you, it is the same impulse that drives me mm-hmm. to do all of this work for a free podcast. <laughs> oh, and I have kids who may interrupt, but I hope that they don't. Yeah, it's cool if they do. I'm, you know, so I'm Lee. Hello, everyone. I do not have kids. Um, I am the resident academic. I'm a rhetorician in particular. So that means I study rhetoric. (laughs) Uh, You'll learn more about what I do in this episode because I'm going to get down on the rhetoric in this particular episode. And news flash, we are now on Twitter at CourtPod. So we're apparently the the first CourtPod on Twitter. So check us out. Tag us. Tweet us shit about what a rotten asshole Trump is, um, and we will tweet right back at you. That's right. In this episode, we are looking at specific strategies that the anti-democratic, revolutionary, libertarian right, the McConnell, Trump, Coke, dark money, axis of evil for short, redefines the particular words such as liberty and courage and conservatives so that they can dupe their supporters into believing that they are getting one thing, more liberty or more courage or more conservatism while, in fact, they are getting less. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Is it conservatism or conservatism? I don't know, but clearly I tried to say both of those. Oh, yeah, no, one. I've been doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, crazy <laughs> it's so crazy because you write notes and then it's like, is this what, does this what sounds sound like out of mouth hole? Yeah, right. <laughs> Conservatism. Yeah, I, I think I might just say conservatism because I, it sounds right to me, even though it's longer. So yes, so just just to reinforce for Mary, like here are three talking points for today. We're going to talk about this word liberty. We're going to talk about this word conservatism. And we're going to talk about the word courage. And courage, uh, well, we'll get to that. But liberty and conservative, these are words that have been getting screwed with by the modern right for a while. I'm not the first person to come up with this, but Mary and I actually will be giving for the first time ever this argument about courage that is like totally a 100% ground score by may it displease the court. So I'm excited to get into that. But first, let's talk about some of the old shit so that you can understand how these words get co-opted, which isn't quite true because it isn't like there's one true meaning of every word and that's just what it should be. So when my 90-year-old grandfather's like, why can't we just have a dictionary with 12 words in it and everyone just uses the word exactly as it means, right? That's not how words work. They evolve at a community level. They're meant to evolve over time. They're meant to reflect new things, right? Words bring new identities into being. So things like domestic violence was not a phrase until the 80s. And that's important because you used to not be able to abuse someone in the context of marriage. So I'm not saying that we need to like stay true to the to the definition of the word because that would make me one of those fake ass originalist uh, modern right people. I'm saying that words are complicated and they have multiple significations and multiple meanings. And you have to watch how certain meanings get shaved off and others get kept so that people are manipulating public opinion. All right. So let's start with uh, liberty. So the motto of the Republic of France is liberté, égalité, fraternité. That's not how French people say it. That's how Valley, how Valley girls say it. My French is terrible. It's like, Mary, do you speak French? It's like liberté, égalité, fraternité. My, it's something like that, My sister right? in France is going to listen to this, and I will not try to do an accent. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to do it like this. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. But essentially, it means liberty, equality, and fraternity. And I keep thinking that the Trump administration's motto should be liberty, courage, conservatism, because conservatism, yeah, I did it, except that each of those three words has been totally convoluted. The motto is more like tyranny, money, whiteness. Uh, Speaking of which, Mary, actually, before we get into this, I have to ask you a burning question. Does the white supremacist anti-choicer get pushed through 
before the election? Like, is it a foregone conclusion that the axis of evil gets the confirmation? Okay, I assume you are talking about uh, the Trump nominee, um, former Justice Scalia Supreme Court clerk, Amy Coney Barrett. She yeah, was fucking she was a Notre Dame law professor uh, who he he nominated her to be on the Seventh Circuit Court of, of Appeals. And she was put there just three years ago. So she's only oh, that's good. That feels right. That that keeps in line with our previous episode about inexperienced. Right. So she went from law professor to appellate court judge to <laughs> Supreme Court nominee in three years. Um, and mm. she is a real darling of the Federalist Society. Uh, do I think she will get through? Uh, I do think she will. Yeah. Um, damn. Damn. Uh, damn. However, damn. however, the GOP Congress and presidency couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act, which should have been a foregone conclusion. They they mm-hmm. did not manage to do that. Uh, so, you know, I think that we have to keep pushing. That is what the Democratic leadership is, is saying. So mm-hmm. don't lose hope. You pressure your, your congressmen and your senators, um, you know, fight until there's no point in fighting anymore. But mm-hmm. I don't see a huge play on the Democrat side uh, to block yeah. to block her. So, yeah. Damn. Um, well, it, it does make me think, though. So we, we talked a lot about Trump and we're going to talk again in this in this episode about how the Trump axis of evil has co-opted the Christian conservative vote. And this is something that has been happening for a while, right, that the modern right who couldn't be less Christian has realized they need the conservative Christian vote, the right Christian vote, because there are left there are leftist Christians, but so we're talking about the right Christians who are who want who want Roe v. Wade totally overturned, and so Trump that's been a big play. So now, are they not going to vote for him if they get the nomination, or are they going to be so excited they're going to keep going, or like well, how does he play with that group? Because they've kind of been a, a single issue vote for a while. I mean, it seems like it would have been politically advantageous for him to kind of dangle this out there, like, and yeah, not make yeah. the nomination and get them to vote for him for president to ensure, like, promise he's going to do it, but not do it till after the election. Seems like that would have been a smarter thing to do, but he didn't do that. Um, and I saw this post from uh, a pro-life Catholic um, who does not like abortion, um, but doesn't really want to focus on Roe or focus on criminalization. She wants to focus on all of the policies that make abortion unnecessary, like social service, uh, mm. you know, p- pumping up social services, um, you know, job creation, so, you know, economic issues, also, mm-hmm. you know, a- access to contraception, you know, all of these things that, you know, that typically happen under democratic presidencies, which actually, if you look at the statistics, abortion happens the least under democratic presidents because they push all of these social policies. So she's like, no, yeah, like edge of fucking Cation. Right. Like Trump has just gutted because he put that other white supremacist idiot in charge of it. Right. I'm real fired up tonight. So she's like, idiots. let's do that, you know? And she, yeah. she has these ties to conservative religious people. I don't really have those anymore. Um, and, you know, her pitch is that uh, and at this point, there's no reason not to vote for Biden because Biden checks all of these other pro-life boxes. I mean, like how you treat immigrants, how you treat right, right, right. This more like all of those social justice issues. He does that where he the only one he doesn't check for them is pro-life. And mm. Trump only checks that box. Well, officially, I mean, if you want to look at his history, that's. Please do. Right. He only he only checks that box he only, right now. He only right, you know, because other yeah. than that, all of his other policies do not uh, advance life. So you know, she's like, hey, there's there's no reason now. There's no reason now not to vote for Biden because you've already got your you've already got your Supreme Court judge. What more do you want? That's all. That's what you've been saying you've wanted. Now you've got it. And I was going to I was I wanted to, like, argue against that because, I, you know, I think she's got a lot of problems. And I was like, don't you dare comment. I like talking to myself. I'm like, don't you dare comment. <laughs> Shut your mouth, Mary. Comment. Shut your mouth. I'm like, this is that's a very pragmatic. That's a very pragmatic position, um, yeah. you know, and there's there's a lot of truth to that. Now, you know, what I think is perhaps missing from that is is the you know the real talk on the democratic side that that you know if if every if they get in they take the senate that they're going to need to expand the court um to you know counteract these you know the complete takeover by you mm-hmm. know by these pro corporatist um 
judges, you know, anti-choice pro-corporatist judges. But of course, that's not clear that that's really going to happen. I mean, you would have to get moderate Democrats. They would have to find a spine. uh, They would have to, you know, take bold steps to shore up democracy. And, you know, when that means changing too many things that are already broken, but, you know, break from norms, I don't know. I don't know whether I think that's pretty speculative that that they would actually be able to achieve that. Yeah, my only hope is that they saw how uh, how well Obama's let's reach across the aisle civility bullshit worked out for eight years, and maybe they just don't care anymore, and they're just going to, like, burn it down. <laughs> I mean, that's my vote, but... Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, but I do think... I, w- I do wonder, right, is this going to create this sort of inherent paradox where a lot of conservative right Christians are either going to have to fess up to the lie that was always in play that Trump is a conservative or a Christian... Or they're going to have to basically just, like, give over all of their values to what is obviously, like, now without pro-life is is an empty – it's an empty affiliation, right? It's an empty alliance. Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, let's talk about how not a conservative Trump is. I mean, he, he's <laughs> – conservatives are uh, – what the word is conserve. It means – to save. And Trump ran on populism. He didn't run on conservatism. I mean, he, I don't think he's really a populist either. Uh, he's a nationalist, you know, but he's, but, you know, the, so the idea that he's a conservative, I think is ridiculous. I mean, conservatives are supposed to want, you know, when you think about your, your uh, rural voter, right? They, they love their way of life and, and, uh, you know, they, they want to preserve history and respect all of that and respect traditions and, and norms and, you know, and the way things have been. Uh, he doesn't want to do any of those things. Yeah. Like the institution of marriage, like where that, where's that? I mean, y'all are shoving that down everybody's fucking throats. Like, where is it now? Well, yeah. And obviously the institution of marriage isn't something that he values particularly yeah, strongly. It's just like, you know, he doesn't live up to any of those things. And, and you know, and, I'm, and anyone who is any intellectually honest conservative would have to agree to that and would have to say, well, we're doing this kind of bargain. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're allowing him to call himself a conservative because we're going to get the judges. Yeah, it's a new like urban legend because I've heard multiple people say to me, oh, I heard this, you know, this guy on the phone talking about, you know, Trump sucks and all this stuff, but but we're going to get abortion. We're going to get it. We just got to put up with him. And I was like, I wonder if this is actually this thing that's happening because I've heard so many people tell it as either something that happened to them or something that happened to someone else that it's starting to feel like made up. But that used to give me hope. But now after hearing it so many times, it's like, well, but your but your thing about Facebook, because I trust you, that makes me excited again. Because yeah. he's not a conservative. Right. And we know that because of the interview that we did with, right, Haney, Haney Lopez. Yeah. So we did an interview with um, Professor Ian Haney Lopez out of Berkeley. He's a Berkeley law professor, and he's the author of the book Merge Left. And he argues that in that he argues that the Trump campaign has relied on weaponizing race to attract white people, mm-hmm. many of whom are economically exploited by that very administration. Um, and in, ad- in addition to weaponizing race, Trump has also exploited the, quote, conservative label when he is not a conservative. Because, you know, conservative value institutions, they want progress to be slow and sustainable and at a slow conservative pace. Yeah. And he said this so well. So let's go ahead and um, pop over actually to borrow that clip. And you can listen to the full episode on the New Books Network linked in the show notes. So here's um, us talking while we're in the background. But here's Dr. Haney Lopez discussing what a conservative is, what the word means. The right and conservatism. I think that this is just an enormously important point. Um, the, the, you know, conservatism is frankly just another lie. Uh, it's, an, it's another fraudulent term being used by today's right. If you think about what conservatism used to mean, it used to mean people who believe in major social institutions, who believe that change ought to be slow and cautious and considered, and that we ought to strive to honor core values uh, while society slowly evolves, right? This is, this is little c conservatism. We believe in institutions. We believe in ch- culture. We believe in tradition. We believe in core values. We also believe in change and evolution because we know that societies evolve. We just think 
that that evolution ought to be slow and thoughtful and respectful of past traditions. Okay. Well, I mean, we might, we might disagree with that. We might be like, no, once we know that something needs to change, we should change it quickly and we should, okay, fine. But let's talk about the modern right. Does it believe in core institutions? Sure doesn't seem to. Destroying the post office. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's um, you know, hijacking the government and handing it over to the rich. It's destroying voting. It's destroying the legislative process. Right? Does, it, does it actually believe in core values? No, it's violating those core values at every turn. Does it believe in, you know, in the, in the essentials of the American experiment? Does it believe in a pluribus unum out of many? One. No, it's trying to fracture that. Does it believe in a government by and for the people? No, it mainly serves the interests of the very rich. What we're seeing is a modern right that no longer believes in democracy. The, this, the modern right is hostile to actual voting. Um, yes. And the reason they're hostile to voting is because the modern right is mainly using government to help the very rich. And then they're turning around and as a strategy for doing so, they're stoking social conflict and animosity purposefully. And, and we might also add, and this is just mind boggling, the modern right is cooperating with Russian efforts to undermine and destroy public confidence in our major institutions and also in the project of democracy and international collaboration. The modern right is cooperating with a country that is trying to destroy the American project because it helps them win power. That that is a violation of conservatism. Pretty clearly, Trump is not a conservative. McConnell, absolutely not a conservative. They say he says, oh, he just loves the Senate rules. Basically, he's just thrown out Senate rules and norms. He has just obliterated it. McConnell mm -hmm. is all about power. That's what he's mm -hmm. all about. So he's conserving absolutely nothing. You know, and I, I think the conservatives, the people, have forgotten what they stand for. You're supposed to think that preserving your way of life is valuable, that yeah. there is, you know, a reasonable and, you know, I don't know. I think that there's I think that there's that's a reasonable argument. I can understand that, you know, going to a small town and seeing the charmed way of life, you know, is I love that. You know, I, I think that having that voice in America is an important one, you know, I can totally get behind that. There's value to that. But, you know, we can't even have a conversation about that versus, you know, moving things more quickly because we have been completely hijacked. You know, it's like it's like we've been taken over by and we're like this parasitic body that is mm. parroting these ideas when the meaning behind it and the power behind it is coming from, you know, a very very small group of elites. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, a couple times in history, after long spans of time, you've seen the left and the right, which is a modern term, but kind of like switch places. And that's almost like what's happening now, because we're the ones, like the left is the ones that have to stand up and be like, what about democracy? What about equal rights? What, you know, what about like, shit that we promised in the founding of the country. Where's all that going to go? Oh, to corporations who are going to save everybody against the immigrant influx and all. It's like, wh who who am I that I'm the one defending the fucking constitution at this point? I never thought I was patriotic because I just, I, yeah, I, yeah, right. I viewed patriotism to be aligned with this type of kind of, uh, you know, nationalistic, uh, view, you know, that doesn't like immigrants mm -hmm. and things like that. And, and I didn't, I didn't want to be associated with that. And yeah. then, you know, through Trump, I really, and I think I've said this before, like I, I've become, I've, I've found my patriotism, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one thing to not be grateful for, but acknowledge has happened, I guess. And you actually brought up, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, you brought up the same point when we also interviewed who's been on the, who's kind of been virtually featured on the show before Nancy McLean, who's the author of Democracy in Chains. And the two of you talked about, you know, how these kind of anti, your, your term, the anti-democratic revolutionary libertarians 
radical libertarians have co-opted the Christian right again with this concept of conservatism. So maybe we should play that too. You you go with that as two clips too much? No, I think it's good. Okay. So let's play Nancy McLean again, another another one of Mary and uh, my dual efforts over for the New Books Network. And um, Dr. McLean has been awesome enough to, to give us permission to use it here. So let's double up on those quotes. Here is Nancy. Kind of going back to, to the way they use terms or uh, use terms and, and misuse terms. I've been struggling with the use of the term conservative mm-hmm. because they call themselves conservative, but they're anything but conservative. And I do think that they have en- they've engulfed people who actually are conservative, but they're now being led and co-opted by what I would call anti-democratic uh, revolutionary libertarians. And, but nobody calls them that, you know, because they get to hide behind this conservative, you know, that people think that they're talking about conserving democracy, conserving America, when that is not what the leaders are doing at all. And so again, it's this conflict between what's going on under the surface and what, and, and the words that are used and they're, and they're, you know, it's like, so it's like parasitic, you know, like they're using these terms that we think we understand, but they're using it differently. Yeah. What did you say? Um, revolutionary uh, libertarian, yeah, anti-democratic libertarians, revolutionary libertarians that really summarizes it. And in fact, to move this program uh, and one element of that was the Cato Institute, which used to be the Charles Koch, <laughs> you know, used to bear his actual name as well as carry his ideology. And I show in, I guess that would be chapter eight, that they were self-conscious revolutionaries then. Charles Koch was talking in these terms. They talked about actual conservatives with nothing but contempt, you know, you know, that these were, you know, I don't, I don't want to even use the language myself because it was so insulting what they said about conservatives and about people who believed in God for that matter. Right. But they realized that they were not going to get anywhere being as radical right as they were and as revolutionary and as anti-democratic they were not going to make friends they were never going to be able to move policy change so what you see from that 1970s honesty about being revolutionaries of the right is a kind of chameleon-like performance uh, that develops over the next uh, decade and more where suddenly they realize the votes they need votes to get things done and the biggest share of votes that would be open to them are people who understand themselves as conservative. So they adopt this false flag, as you say, um, and and kind of all but take over that space. Um, And to do so, they also make alliances, which are Uh, frankly, would be hypocritical to that 1970s honest libertarianism, but they find ways to do it, in particular with the religious right. So I don't talk as much about this in the book as I kind of wish that I had in hindsight because I could ask about it a lot. But they definitely, from the 70s forward, Buchanan and then Koch and then Cato and other, like they start kind of cozying up to the religious right because they see that they're a source of votes. And the way that they do it, um, the ones who try to be more principled, is to speak in terms of religious liberty, a phrase that we hear a lot now, right? So now we hear about the religious liberty to basically discriminate, right? The religious liberty to deny jobs to uh, people who are, are um, queer or, um, you know, like, somehow offensive to Christians, religious liberty to uh, be exempt from healthcare regulations that would have coverage for women's reproductive health, Um, religious liberty to open your churches instead of obey the um, COVID-19 precautions. So they're really um, uh, conscripting all these other actors for this conservative cause. And um, I actually quote in the beginning, uh, in the introduction, um, Orrin Hatch, the senator from Utah, he says, he said, these people aren't conservatives. They're not Republicans. They're radical libertarians. I despise these people. But look what happened. Then it's, it's the exact same man who denies President Obama the ability to seat judges, right? Because he is um, 
has become controlled by their program because they're such powerful donors and they can activate that right wing base of voters in primary challenges that, you know, kind of weld the popular anger to the donors purses um, so that no Republicans will step out of line. So, I mean, it's kind of bizarre. I think there was actually more dissent under Stalin in the Soviet Union, in the Politburo, than we see now in the Republican Party in Congress. Nancy makes an important point here about religious liberty. And I want to emphasize not just religious liberty, but all liberty works this way. Liberty is the second word for the episode, right? The word liberty is what we call a signifier, just like conservative. And it means that it has been used in so many contexts and in so many different ways that you really can't say for sure what it, quote, means anymore. You Google the phrase liberty definition and you get two definitions in in the little box that shows up on Google. The first definition is the state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way of life, behavior, or political views. The second one is the power or scope to act as one pleases. So makes sense, right? I mean, we Google definitions all the time and it's like, oh yeah, that's what that word means. So liberty is kind of like, you know, freedom. Except no, it's not like freedom. Those two definitions mean very different things, even though they both belong to the same word. And that's why you shouldn't use pop dictionaries as evidence for arguments. This is like a trick of the rhetoric trade. Almost all definitions for a word contain pieces that compete with each other. And so then you have to watch which pieces are sticking around and which pieces are getting like excised or cut off, right? So the first definition is about freedom from oppression or authority. That's close to the more restrictive sense of the word that was used by the writers of the Constitution, the founding F-words. Liberty is freedom from. It's right there in definition number one, being free from oppressive restrictions. Freedom from tyranny in particular. That is the word that grew out of two revolutions against tyranny, the French Revolution, right? Our revolution, the U.S. Revolution. It didn't mean freedom to do whatever you wanted. The Constitution guarantees property-owning, straight, cis, white men, because if you're Black or a woman or poor, like, they didn't write that shit for you, liberty and justice for all, not freedom. Because freedom to do whatever you want is an insane guarantee when you're trying to build a nation. Also, how do you guarantee justice or equality in the same breath as freedom if everyone is free to do what they want? You don't. You guarantee liberty alongside justice and equality, but you don't guarantee freedom. Now, the second part of the definition switches over to this concept of freedom to do whatever you want, right? The power or scope to act as one pleases. But notice it's not a right. It's just your ability. Like you have the freedom. I mean, you possess the ability to do whatever you want, but that's different than having a guarantee and a right granted to you by your nation or your organization or whatever that you have freedom from tyranny. So how is it possible that the same word can mean two basically opposite things? Because over the last half century, like as the country has become more diverse and that whole, you know, equality thing became something we actually had to follow through on, liberty has gotten co-opted and redeployed as the word freedom by the modern right, especially the far right. Because they know that people can be mobilized to feel threatened and want someone to protect their freedom against people who want to come and take it. In the meantime, Those same people, right, Koch-funded fake libertarian Republicans and all of their big money donor cronies and pro-corporate inexperienced judges don't want you to have freedom, not at fucking all. They think of freedom like bait. So they dangle it. And while you're chasing the freedom to do basic shit like drive a diesel truck or own a semi-automatic with a silencer, they're busy curbing your actual liberties, your rights to live without freedom from tyranny, and have a decent standard of living and equal treatment under the law so they can line their pockets at your expense. They mobilize that sense that your, quote, freedom is being taken away by liberals, black people, gays, the poor, immigrants, scientists, protesters, so that you're so busy defending this basic bitch notion of freedom, right, freedom to, while Trump and McConnell and company are busy eroding your freedom from. They're using your own entitlement against you to cement a regime that is truly tyrannical, truly anti-liberty, truly anti-constitution. And they are chomping at the bit to punish dissent. Oh, yeah. 
And for sure. Trump is, you know, he talks uh, he talks a lot about journalists. They are at risk. You know, if this goes really poorly, journalists are at risk. Academics are at risk. Heck, people who make podcasts like this could be at risk. I mean, those that, those types of things cross your mind because Proud Boys are coming, Mary. They're coming for our podcast. God, you know, it, it, they're saying these things out there in in the media. You know, so it's it's something to be concerned about because and so where where is that freedom to dissent, which is what we fought for? We fought for this. Well, we didn't, but you know. They did. They, when they started the country, they did. So as you know, I am obsessed with this court packing and I have been kind of holding my nose and following some coke surrogates like Carrie Severino of the Heritage Foundation on Twitter. Um, and I do this so that you don't have to. Thank you for your service. Yes. <laughs> and I noticed that she started using the word courage to describe a judicial quality that they were looking for when they were compiling Trump's new list of judges um, and for the, the, the Federalist Society, you know, and they were coming up with their new list of judges that they were going to tell everybody about. And then I also noticed that Don McGahn, who was the former White House counsel, and he's also like deep in with this list compiling, and also Leonard Leo, who is the head of the Federalist Society, also have began using this term which to me seems clearly like a code for a concept. So I texted Lee. I was like so excited. I'm like, I don't know any other rhetoricians. Talk about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, there were few and far between. So yeah, and it's interesting. And, and I think this is something for everyone to notice when these words start to pop up or you start to see them in places that they don't seem to always be there or they seem to be used in ambiguous or different ways than you're used to. These are really good signs that language is moving. And sometimes that's in an awesome direction. And sometimes like courage, we got to like watch out for that stuff. So I did a little research into courage in the rhetorical sense, not into like what it means to have courage. Unlike liberty and conservative, which have pretty specific lines of march throughout the centuries, and you can see where they were and where they've come, courage is totally new territory for us. So I started at the Oxlish, uh, at the Oxlish. I started at the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the only dictionary that I trust. And sorry to the Brits if I just offended you with my shitty. I'm offending the French. I'm offending offend the Brits. So there are a million definitions for courage in. In the OED, and they and they do, they do it all through Middle English. It's really cool. So you got lots of choices, but I picked this one out that's kind of modern and and general. So it's the quality of mind, or, or that. So because OED is always so fancy, that quality of mind which shows itself in facing danger without fear or shrinking, bravery, boldness, and valor. So at minimum, courage has this kind of like disruptive quality. It's a willingness to disrupt and accept the consequences, which means courage is fundamentally revolutionary, not conservative. In the definitions from the Middle Ages, now marked obsolete in the OED, meaning nobody uses them anymore, there's this other layer. Uh, they speak of heart and feeling. So courage is the heart as the seat of feeling, thought, et cetera, spirit, mind, disposition, and nature. That's mind, M-I-N-D. What is in one's mind or thoughts, what one is thinking of or intending, intention, purpose, desire, or inclination. And then there are some older uses such as to speak one's mind or to tell all one's heart. So that's somewhat helpful. But if you've ever been like trolled on social media by someone being hateful who's just speaking their mind, uh, then it's, <laughs> it doesn't really do much for us. So I went back to ancient Greek, which is the seat of democracy, to look at how they conceptualize courage. And of course, I don't speak Greek and there's tons of Greek words, but after a little bit of digging, I came up with this word therseo from Strong's Greek, which is just a, a generic Greek compilation site. And that is from the root thar, which means bolstered because warmed up or emboldened from within. So if we go back to our last episode of May It Displease the Court, we talked about the ideological emptiness, right? The vacuousness of ideas among the anti-democratic revolutionary libertarians. Right, These people whose only ideology, if you can even call it that, is money and profit and power for the sake of more power to get more profit. Right? They're not courageous because they are not warmed from within by any idea or conviction or purpose. Right Now, anti-choicers, so people who want Roe v. Wade appealed more than anything, 
so much that they are willing to back a man who couldn't be called Christian in any language. Those people are emboldened from within. They're on fire for a cause. I don't like what they stand for, but at least they have a cause. Now, jumping ahead to the 1950s from Greek and from ancient Greece, about the time that Nancy McLean argues that these you know, anti-democratic revolutionary libertarians started to co-opt the legitimate political right in the wake of Brown v. Board of Education, we see this other significant use of courage. So it's written by then-Senator John F. Kennedy in 1957, and the book is called Profiles in Courage. And it was a profile of eight senators that JFK believed, uh, quote, focused on the careers of people whom had shown great courage under enormous pressure from their parties and their constituents, which includes liberal and conservative senators. So now in 57, we have this sense of courage and we might say like political courage, not so you don't confuse it with like running out onto the battlefield, that includes conviction, right? being emboldened from within, warmed from within, and a willingness to work against the status quo, to be emboldened when the opinion is not popular. If we're talking about what courage looks like in that context, it looks like... Um, Mary, maybe you have some examples too, but it looks like a Republican Mitt Romney speaking out in favor of Trump's impeachment, right? kind of like to his own detriment and like by himself. It also looks like Republican John McCain, who time and again uh, has promoted bipartisan campaign finance reform and all kinds of other things. And then, of course, you know, his campaign finance act was gutted during Citizens United. I mean, that would so that would have been my example too. So. Yeah, that, yeah. So, and there, and there's other ones. I mean, again, like, okay. So, let's give another example. Gabby Giffords, right? She, she's a liberal. I only know her because she's, she's helping with them. I know. I mean, I know her because she was really famous for the Obama civility speech in Tucson because she was out. Was she campaigning or she was doing something in her political duties? And like a pro, like a, like a radical, like domestic terrorist right winger shot her in the face and she survived. Now, is that courage? No. It, it, I mean, I'm not trying to be an asshole, maybe in the generic sense of the term, but not in this very restricted sense, because she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, got shot and survived. But like Malala Yousaf stands up uh, and advocates for women getting an education in the Taliban controlled. Is she, Afghani is she from Afghanistan? I think she's Pakistani. Pakistani? Okay. Uh, my apologies. Um, I'm going off the cuff here and get shot in the face, right? See the difference? So we have this kind of emboldened from within ideological conviction, standing up against things that are not popular. And in the context of politics, very much for the U.S. context against the political party lines. So now let's talk about Citizens United, which I just mentioned. So in 2010, when Citizens United was decided, in the words of the Brennan Center, Scalia reliably voted with the conservative majority as the Roberts Court expanded opportunities for higher and higher election spending by the few who can afford to spend the most. But then the Brennan Center, which I think is left-leaning, I did a little research, they seem legit, so goes on to say that Scalia was a champion of transparency. So there's another key word, always got to watch for that. Quote, he feared that too much anonymity in public debate would threaten democracy itself. Then they cite Scalia from a 2010 case, oddly about the disclosure of petition signatures, not campaign funding. So here's Scalia in the 2010 case. Scalia writes, quote, requiring people to stand up in public for their political acts fosters civic courage without which democracy is doomed. For my part, I do not look forward to a society which, thanks to the Supreme Court, campaigns anonymously, hidden from public scrutiny and protected from the accountability of criticism. This does not resemble the home of the brave. The Brennan Center concludes that the nation is careening, that as we kind of head into this election, which will definitely have just unprecedented levels of secret spending, right, dark money spending, Congress and the president can improve that disclosure, right? Acting in accordance with Scalia's values, but instead they leave all of this money to flow through these dark money groups. Quote, it is likely that Scalia would be disgusted by these secret donors' lack of courage. So Mary, of course, right now is probably thrilled, except it's Scalia, right? So it, it's like, I can imagine a context in which a Republican-appointed judge could legitimately support corporate campaign interests because it's part of that free market logic that Republicans like to deploy, even though it's a farce. So also in 2010, the campaign disclosure rules were still on the books. I can even imagine Scalia would not have been able to anticipate Citizens United paving the way for this just deluge of dark money. Although, you know, given all that Koch had accomplished by 2010, it's hard to imagine Scalia was that naive, but still like maybe Scalia speaking here of like that Kennedy style courage of Thorseo, Thurseo of corporations who are so on fire from within about their special interests, gun rights, anti-choice, whatever, and their civic duty to be accountable and transparent to the public. 
Of course, knowing what we know now about dark money from the right, it's hard to, again, it's just hard to imagine Scalia could have meant courage in the way he wants us to believe he meant courage. But let's suppose that I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Except (laughs) jump back three years before Citizens United, 2007, at the 25th anniversary celebration of the Federalist Society. And Mary, do you want to remind us real quick about um, what that is? Okay. We did an episode, but I never like to, I never like to assume. Sure. Okay. Just going to quickly recap. The Federalist Society started out as a group in the 80s, early 80s of kind of disaffected law school conservatives who wanted to have a larger voice in law schools. And it, in, you know, it quickly got co-opted by Koch funding and it started using this kind of dorky debate society as cover for <laughs> its new role as political operatives. Uh-huh. It claims to be a network of conservative lawyers and academics, but it's actually much more than that. It's it's a think tank. It attracts and recruits, you know, big conservative lawyers, scholars, politicians, Supreme Court justices to these events. Um, it publishes papers. Um, it does podcasts. It holds these galas. Um, but it has really um, also the vehicle of power um, mm. in that it is seeking to reorder the judiciary by grooming and vetting and selecting uh, mm-hmm. amenable judges. Right. And the question is, how do they groom and vet and select these judges? And so one of the points that that Mary and I have been kind of thinking about is, it's like, yeah, there's a secret society, right? But there needs to be, I mean, the world is so complex and vast and everything is documented and like everything is recorded. You're not just going to get all these people in one place on the internet and be like, hey, y'all, we should definitely start using courage as a secret code word for blah, blah, blah. It's a thing that happens... It's like a hive mind phenomenon, right? That that words, somebody starts to push on a word and another person pushes on a word and then another pu- person sort of pushes on a word. It's like the word queer. Like que- the queers, you know, which includes me, you know, we didn't get together and go like, eh, I wonder what we should use to call it. I mean, people don't do that, but it's like people start to mess with language here. It gets over here. It gets over here. And so what Mary is really noticing when she sees this courage word popping up is this organic way in which this whole entire set of you know, anti-corp- anti-democratic, pro-corporate mentality, which is the best you can call it. It's not a belief system. It's just like a an impulse to be shitty. Uh, how it kind of gets like organized, kind of at the at the level of language, but it's not it's not as conspiracy theory unless you believe in rhetorical conspiracy theories, in which case that would be what this is. Now there are actual conspiracy theories, like not even because dark money, Mary. And, so, and not even a conspiracy. That shit's just documented. Yeah, I don't know that I'm totally on board with that. With with that, that this is an organic thing. Just be just. Oh, you don't think, huh? Uh, well, okay. This is why. This is why I'm. 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 I reserve judgment on that. Okay, who, that's fair. Who Who are the ones pushing this language? Carrie Severino. She's Coke funded Heritage Foundation. Yes. Leonard Leo. John. These are the people at the top. Right. So this isn't yeah. bubbling up from anywhere. This is sort of this to me seems like top down language development. I just made that phrase up by, myself, you know, <laughs> trying my top, yeah. <laughs> top, top down language development is perfect, though, because it gives a little bit of credit to the fact that language can be sort of like contagion. But also there is a there is someone orchestrating it. It's just not in sort of the authoritarian way we usually think of it. I love that top down language development. That's perfect. Right. And, and we I mean, we keep seeing it. So like the, if I had more time, I'm sure we could keep going and going. But we're at the 27th anniversary and Scalia's there and T- Clarence Thomas is there. And, you know, they're speaking about the group's origins or it's originating myth. It's like that story about your like weird engagement and keeps you together probably like way long after you should have broken up. It's one of those. So according to The New Yorker, this is what Scalia says. Quote, we thought we were just planting a wildflower among the weeds of academic liberalism, and it turned out to be an oak. And then Thomas jumps in, quote, look at this huge audience, and I can only imagine the courage of a few young people who came up with yet one more idea. Let's start something, which is not an idea, but okay. Let's start an organization where we can actually talk about ideas, where we can actually talk about the Constitution and its structure, and how that structure is to protect our liberty. So notice now how Constitution and liberty start hanging out together. Can you imagine the courage that these young people had? So the question I'm wondering is, did Scalia and Thomas mean courage in this context, right, in 2007, the way the Brennan Center credits him for meaning it during Citizens United? Well, according to the New Yorker, it, wasn't, it was in fact, right, students who started the Federalist Society. 
But, I mean, they had a lot of, like, Supreme Court justices as their advisors, so there's kind of this chicken or the egg thing going down. Again, I'm going to borrow Mary's phrase. It was probably a top-down organizational creation. But, and this is where it gets real funky, according to The New Yorker, and I quote, it is less clear that tremendous courage was required. Within just a few years, the group, the Federalist Society, was embraced and funded by a number of powerful, wealthy, conservative organizations, which eventually included foundations associated with John Olin, Lindy and Harry Bradley, Richard Scyfe, and, of course, our friends, the Koch brothers. So courage, you know, just gets real funky the more examples we have of how it's used in practice. Like, sure, some Federalist Society members might be lit by ideological fire from within, truly believing that their constitution is under siege from liberal academics like you know me, and being willing to stand up uh, you know, to scrutiny for their convictions. But as the fucking money starts pouring in and these dark money donors start buying up institutions and paying for research, and this is the important part, pushing special interests that are anti-democratic and anti-constitutional, where was all this courage? Right, all the courage to speak up. Where are all these Republicans and conservatives who are supposed to be standing up to special interests, standing up to Trump for colluding with Russia and firing everyone who disagrees with him and like refusing to disclose his fucking tax returns for Christ's sake? Right. I mean, I don't know. It really seems like courage means something else now. Mm-hmm. It seems like it means loyalty to powerful entities, like kind of how gang members need to prove their loyalty to the yes. group by performing some sort of act or gesture before they're initiated into yeah. that group. It's like rhetorical gang initiation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Fox News um, tells the story of Leonard Leo, who is, a, who is the former executive vice president, and he's the current co-chairman of the Federal Society. And Fox calls Leo the man behind Trump's court takeover. And, you know, he's been working kind of to start this campaign to make the president's appointments list. Now, Fox explains that Leo has to go through and he's like every single thing that this that's potential judicial, you know, nominee has ever written. And so Fox is quoting Leo directly here. It says, quote, the written word tells us about the candidate's courage, about their Mm -hmm. views on the Constitution and the rule of law and how they will approach their role as a judge. Leo also tells Fox that he's looking for nominees who are, quote, not weak, need to be courageous people who are not going to bend to the political or social pressures of the day. Now, notice Leo's subtle but important shift here okay he's he's using courage to mean not politically accountable not accountable which is kind of perfect because judges are installed for life the federal judges are installed for life they are not accountable to the judge to to the to the people they can't be voted out they can't be fired so you know How do you have any sway over them? That's kind of the point. They're supposed to be independent. Well, they're looking for courage. Mm. All right. For Kennedy, um, the issue was bipartisan courage, kind of the willingness to do what was unpopular with your party. For Scalia, um, and I think you're giving him a very generous read. Um, it was... Thin- yeah, and again, just because I think it makes the argument better sure. if you make it generous. Sure. <laughs> because right. it shows how fucked up it is. Right. It's civic courage, okay? It's the willingness to be transparent and accountable even when you might get shit for it. Now, none of that seems to be in play here. I mean, right. There's certainly no sense of like a burning fire from within or like this emboldening con- that comes from conviction, you know, believe righteousness. No, we are talking about one meaning of courage, and that one meaning is the willingness to toe the party line. And it's a party line that has been thoroughly bought and paid for by dark money. It's a party line that has sold out conservatism for radical, anti-democratic libertarianism. You know, it's a party line that has voted 80 unanimous 5-4 decisions in favor of of corporate interests. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's just, you know, a few of the lines from Scalia and Leo, you know, I mean, you know, possibly we're cherry picking, you know, I don't know. But 
of course, then we go back to Carrie Severino, who's, you know, the president of the Conservative Judicial Crisis Network, okay, which is Koch funded. This is another big player in the Trump court takeover. And Severino tells Fox News that the Trump nominees, quote, were chosen with specific interest in having certain level of courage. Of courage. I knew you were going to say that. And yes. principle in a oh, way that the yeah. Bush administration wasn't focusing on. Okay, so she's drawing a distinction between previous, you know, Republican appointed judges who they can't count on. Right. Because they weren't, they didn't, you know, have that same level of courage. Right. All right. And later, Severino, in in that article, Severino says Trump nominees, quote, have consciously been vetted for making sure that they have demonstrated courage in their lives. Yeah. So this, I thought this was so, I mean, I just like, good job, Severino, for just handing me this argument on a platter with that Bush line. Because what is left over in the realm of courage after you subtract everything the Bush administration stood for from the Trump administration? Money. Big fuck you to the middle class and the working poor and the, you know, the poor. Uh, Big corporate anti-democratic money. So... You know, when Trump or Leo or Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or anybody else writes or says the word courage, uh, you can bet it means one thing, like a willingness to side with corporate interests any and every time. And on that note, with the passing of the notorious RBG, I've noticed a lot of people talking about her courage. And that's totally true. She had real courage. But watch yourself, because one thing I'm real really worried about is that they've been planting the seed of this certain use of courage just like liberty, just like conservative. And the more that Ginsburg and that word gets circulated around, the more it validates the way that courage is operating in these insidious ways over in this other set of far right discourses. So if you want to say that she had courage, you need to define what you mean by that. And you need to remind everybody that that is not what Trump and McConnell and Leo are talking about when they talk about their justice's courage. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.